Open your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're going to dig into it. We find ourselves at Acts 17. We've traveled all this way, and it keeps getting better and better. Acts 17 is a powerful because um, it shows us the victory of the gospel in the face of opposition. It shows us the utter determination that somebody has to preach even when people don't like what you're preaching. We live in a culture where if people don't like what you're preaching, you change what you're preaching. Because some people might think if people don't like what you're preaching, God must not be with you. If people oppose you, God must not be for you. But that's simply not the case. It's not in the scripture. In fact, the scripture says, Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. Jesus said, you'll be persecuted for this word. So, that's all right. We're prepared for it. He gave you everything you needed to stand and to not give up and to not give in and, in fact, to overcome through all of this. So, in the book of Acts, go to chapter 17. Praise God. Lord, we thank you for your word. We know it's good. We know that it is life. We know that it is truth. Lord, I ask you to open up our eyes to see it, open up our ears to hear it, our hearts to understand it. Lord, that we would be willing and open vessels for you to pour into, for you to transform. Don't let our minds and what we've already thought before or past tradition or experience keep us from truly hearing your word. In every way, we want to be the kind of people that you can use to shake nations, to shake cities, to shake regions, to shake our own families. So, Lord, shake us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. It says, When they had traveled, traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them. And for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and had to rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. Now, something's lost in the translation a little bit here because the Bible that we've received, the New Testament was written in Greek. Luke wrote the book of Acts in Greek. But he's not speaking Greek to these Jewish people. He's speaking the native language. He's speaking, uh, I mean, even though many of them might have spoke Aramaic, he's most likely speaking Hebrew to them. And when he says, this Jesus, now he, it's, there's possibly he spoke Greek to them here because it's a, Thessalonica is a Greek city. It's quite possible he could have spoke Greek, but that's not the point. I'll tell you one word he didn't speak in Greek, and that was Christ. He probably didn't use the word Christ. To them, they would have heard Messiah. Because that's what Christ is. Christ is the Greek uh, translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. So uh, what he's saying to them is not because to us so, for so long Christ has been used with Jesus that, that most of us folks in North America, we kind of treat it like it's Jesus' last name is Christ. But Christ means the anointed one. And it's what the prophets spoke about for centuries. I'm sending a Messiah to you. He's going to set you free from, your yoke, from the yoke of your oppressors. He's going to redeem you. And so here you notice that even though God has opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, people like you and me who aren't of Jewish heritage, even though he's opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, Paul still, still goes first to the synagogue of the Jews and he speaks to the Jewish people, his brothers and sisters, and he speaks to them very plainly about the fact that Jesus that he's proclaiming 
is the Messiah they've been waiting for all these years. The Jesus that he's proclaiming is the Messiah they learned about in Sabbath school. You notice he's doing it every Sabbath. I don't know what he's doing in between then. He might be ministering to the local Christians. He might be doing something else. But on the Sabbath, he's going to synagogue and he's proclaiming, I found the Messiah. Here he is. That's a big thing. When your whole religion centers around the fact, especially at this time in history, you talk to many Jews today and they believe in Meshach, they believe that there's a Messiah, but they don't talk about it as much as somebody might have in Paul's day. These people were under the yoke, under the thumb of the Romans, and they expected maybe in our lifetime God will send a Messiah to set us free. But for many of them, it just became something you learned about. I don't know how many Christians go to Sunday school, how many people grew up in a church and knew the Bible stories and yet never really affected their life, just knew it. How many Christians say Jesus is coming again yet have no real expectation of it, no real hope of it, no real desire for it? It's the same way for a lot of these guys. They talk about the Messiah. They know facts about the Messiah that you couldn't even name. And yet, when Jesus comes, most of them don't recognize him. Can you imagine? You imagine being such a, a fan of a hockey player that you know all his stats and you know where he played in, in like peewee. You, I mean, you know where this guy played and, and I mean, from, from his little just elementary school days, you know where he played junior hockey, you know where he came up, who drafted him when he was drafted, you know all these stats and then, you know, he happens to be eating at the same restaurant you're eating and you don't recognize him there and he says, no, that's who I am and you go, no, you're not. Can you imagine you know everything about him, but you don't recognize him. This is what happened, even on a larger scale, when Jesus came. They knew. Remember Herod? Herod says, where's this baby going to be born? And he called these leaders to him, and they said, Bethlehem. They knew where he was supposed to be born. In fact, later on, the Pharisees and the Sadducees argued with Jesus. And they said, uh, the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Aren't you from Nazareth? See, they didn't know he was actually born in Bethlehem. But they even knew the birthplace of the Messiah. Do you know how much you have to dig for that? If, I mean, we, it's easy for us now because we know the scriptures and we've got a Bible that we can flip to. But I mean, if you've got these big scrolls, how, how much they knew to instantly know the birthplace of the Messiah before he even came, and yet they didn't recognize him. So when Paul comes to the Thessalonians, Every Sabbath for three weeks, he gets up and he talks about Jesus. And he says, this Jesus that I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah. And it says this, he says in verse 3, explaining and giving evidence that the Messiah had to suffer and arise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So you see there's a much larger number of Gentiles getting saved than the Jews. These God-fearing Greeks most likely were Gentiles that were showing up at synagogue because they believed in God. They weren't worshiping uh, the pantheon of Greek gods. They weren't worshiping, you know, Zeus and Apollo and all these guys. I mean, they were worshiping 
the, the true God. They had been converted. And when Paul came and preached to them the Messiah, they believed it. Large number of them got saved. And it says a number of the leading women. But then in verse 5, it tells us, but the Jews... Becoming jealous, now usually you notice in the Gospels and in the book of Acts when it says the Jews. <laughs> Think about it. They're all Jews. Like when Jesus is walking around, they're all Jews. He's a Jew. His disciples are Jews. Kind of a weird thing to say, but the Jews didn't like him. The Jews were trying to kill him. Everyone around him was a Jew. When a Gentile came up to him, he goes, not yet. Not your turn. I'm here for the house of Israel. She goes, well, can't the dogs just eat the crumbs from the table? He goes, okay, I'm going to heal you. Boom. But for the most part, he's preaching to the Jews. So why does the gospel say, but the Jews were trying to kill him? It's because most of the time when the gospels in the book of Acts say the Jews, it's not talking about Jewish people. It's talking about the leaders, the leaders of the synagogue, the leaders, the, the leaders like the Sadducees and the leaders of the Pharisees. These were the ones that were opposing Jesus. These are the ones that are opposing Paul. I mean... Pretty much, I, I, was, I forgot who I was talking to. I was talking to somebody recently, and uh, it might have been in Spokane. It might have been here. I don't recall. But this young lady said, we were talking about Jesus, and she said, well, what happens if you're Jewish? I said, oh, no, it was here. It was here. It was right here. She said, well, what if you're Jewish? I said, oh, no problem, because she was asking if she could receive Jesus. What if you're Jewish? I said, Jesus was Jewish. His disciples were Jewish. You know, the whole book, all of our heroes, we're Jewish. You're okay. You got to just receive Jesus. This is good. It's not a hindrance. It's wonderful. So when it talks about the Jews, it's talking about the leaders, and it says they became jealous. Why? They're the teachers. All of a sudden, there's a new message being proclaimed, and people are turning to follow that, and they're not teaching it. So they become jealous, and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, they formed a mob. Do you know what this means? All of a sudden, we're having a kumbaya moment. The Jews are getting along with the wicked Gentiles. Because the one thing they can agree on is starting a good riot. You know, let's get a good mob together. Apparently, there's some folks in the marketplace that can be counted on for a mob riot at any time. These people still exist, you know. These people show up to like hockey games in the States, you know. You go to Fenway Park, they're there for a baseball game. There are, there are folks, not just in sports, there's other areas too, but there, there's always, you know, when, when Vancouver had those riots, did you ever notice that most of the people arrested weren't even from Vancouver, but they heard there's going to be a riot, let's go. Yeah. I love to turn over some cars, you know. There's always these kind of people, so the Jews knew where these guys were. It says they go find some wicked people that hang out in the marketplace, and they say, want to form a mob? And they go, yeah, let's do that. Now, maybe some of them needed some persuading. So what they, they persuaded them with the same language that they persuaded the Romans and, and, the, and the government leaders that, that these, guys are, these guys are starting a rebellion. These guys are, are preaching about another king. And it says here that they set the city in an uproar and they attacked the house of Jason. Jason was a new believer. He was one of the first believers here. On, obviously a leader, probably letting the believers meet in his house. He's probably one of the first house churches right there. And they attack his house, and they were seeking to bring them out to the people. Then it says, when they did not find them, so they couldn't find Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. Now, I wonder... 
If our message is powerful enough for our critics to say, you've turned, up, you've turned the world upside down, you've upset the world. Be ashamed if our message was only so powerful that it, that it just sent little ripples inside this building. Little ripples amongst other believers. You learn a lot by what your critics say about you, don't you? The critics here are saying they've upset the whole world. That's good. I want my critics to say things like that about me. That's not an insult. That's a positive thing. You're making a difference. Look what he says. They've upset the world. And they've come here also. Verse 7. Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. It's wonderful how these Jewish leaders have all of a sudden become the Romans' best friend. The same thing happened when they were bringing Jesus before Pilate. The same leaders that were like, oh, those Romans, I hate those Romans, stupid Romans. Someday God's going to set us free from these Romans. And when they're in synagogue, they say, don't tell anybody, but God's going to send somebody. He's going to toss the Romans out and we'll have our city back and we'll have our nation back. But then when it comes time to drag these people in front of the authorities, their big concern, oh, Roman authorities, Our only concern is that these guys are preaching another king. And you know we love Caesar. We're all about Caesar. We have Caesar t-shirts at home. So we named a salad after the guy. We really like him. Um, They're talking about another king. You need to get this guy in prison. Um, Better yet, beat him up. You know, maybe, hey, I'm not saying it, but if you want to execute him, it's cool with us. This is the kind of thing they're putting out there. They say, they're saying there's another king, Jesus Thank God there's another king. Verse 8, they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. In other words, Jason paid a a bond or uh, basically paid his bail. In other words, he put a a bunch of money forward saying, I'll come back for court. That goes back far enough way there. It says here in verse 10 that the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. We'll stop here for a minute. Because if you've been born again for a while, you've probably heard the name Bereans. Maybe not, maybe you have. But Bereans, when you talk amongst church people who've been church people for a long time, maybe you talk, about, you talk to people who you know, studied this stuff, when they went hear the word Bereans, here's what they say. Bereans are the ones that were noble-minded because they went home and they searched the Scripture. That's, that's what most people will tell you the Bereans are because that's what we just read. What's missed in the context is that, and even I believed this for the longest time because I just never really looked at it, but... We always use that as a way of saying, don't just blindly accept what's preached. Go home and check it out. Well, hey, at this church, we've always encouraged you to do that. We we tell you, hey, read everything we read here. Go back and read it. Read what came before it. Read what came behind it. Study it. See for yourself that it's true. I'm behind that. But watch, the Bereans weren't noble-minded. The way the church has taught this for so long is that what was noble-minded about the Bereans... Here's the common teaching. The Bereans didn't just 
swallow it without checking it out first, implying that the Thessalonians just accepted whatever Paul said and didn't check it out. But that's the opposite of what happened. It says the Bereans were more noble-minded than the Jews of Thessalonica that rejected the word. They're being compared to the Jews in Thessalonica that heard it, didn't believe it, didn't go home and check it out, just rejected it outright. What does it say here? It says these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For, here's why they were more noble-minded. They received the word with great eagerness. Do you realize a noble-minded believer is a believer that receives the word with great eagerness? I'm not saying you need to receive everything I say. I'm saying you need to receive everything that's in this book. And you receive it with great eagerness, even, even when it seems to come against your old, commonly held traditional theories. Because a lot of the stuff, half the stuff we say about God, doesn't even come from the Bible. If you've been raised in generations of Christians, half the little sayings you say that make everybody feel better aren't even in the Scripture. Big chunk of them written by Benjamin Franklin. Cleanliness is next to godliness. It's not found in the Bible. It's a great thing. Cool. Be clean. Yeah, yeah. But it's not in the Bible. A penny saved is a penny earned. Not in the Bible. We could just go on and on. Friend of mine was talking about how he was in Bible school, in a very prominent Bible school in, in Washington State, where some of these kids were just so locked in a traditional prison that they, they refused to see things that were outside of their, you know, what they had heard their grandpappy say. And I'm, I'm for tradition. I'm for honoring the generations before you. I'm not for tradition when it gets in the way of the Word of God. You understand? I don't believe every generation needs to remake things. I think we stand on the shoulders of the generation before. We should be humble enough to learn. We should be humble enough to receive. We should be humble enough to listen to those that have been there longer than us. But Jesus said this. He says, in vain, he said this to the Pharisees, in vain you worship me, teaching as doctrine the traditions of men. And then he says, the traditions of men, your traditions have made the word of God powerless. Doesn't do anything. So you hear what he's saying. He says, your problem is you take traditions and you teach them as doctrine. What should be taught as doctrine? The word of God should be taught as doctrine. But they've come along and piled all this extra stuff on the word of God. More rules and more um, theories and more other, all these other things that weren't in the word. They were just tradition. And he says, you treat them and you teach them as if they are from God himself, as if they're doctrine. And he says, you have made the word of God powerless in your life. How does that come back to me and you? Some of you were raised in a Christian home. Some of you just got saved recently. We all come from different backgrounds. And thank God we all stand equal before God. I understand we all come from different backgrounds. So how do you make this apply to you? When Jesus said that, you know that when you hear something and it's new and it challenges your previously held beliefs, there's a part of you that gets excited and there's a part of you that's prone to get angry. There's a part of you that says, whoa. And there's times where the first time you heard something, the first time you stepped into a church that actually believed the word of God, first time you talked to somebody that 
had something in their bones that was more than just dead religion and it was, there was life in them. You were either drawn to it or you got angry around them and uncomfortable. The times where we get angry and uncomfortable is times where we're being challenged. We're being challenged by it. Being challenged by something that we haven't yet really grasped. Being challenged because our tradition is coming into conflict with the Word of God itself. And the tradition, we've built our lives around it. We feel like we got it figured out. And when God opens a door you haven't seen before, it makes me nervous. Because I like to have the whole house mapped out. I like to have it all figured out. I like to believe that I know everything I need to know, but that's not the case. So the reason the Bereans were more noble-minded, it says here, is because they received the word with eagerness. And they received it with eagerness, and what they do? They went home and saw it was, them, it was exactly like he said. They searched their own scriptures, and they found it to be true. See, a lot, I've heard Christians talk about the Bereans. There are Christians out there that name their website after the Bereans, and all they're doing is trying to find things that are wrong with other things that people are teaching. That's all they're doing. And they're saying, we're more noble-minded because we're checking it out. You know what they're doing? They're not looking for truth. They're looking for the lies. When you want to find a lie, you'll find a lie anywhere. When you want to find something wrong, if you went through Jesus' teachings and cut and paste and took them out of context, you can make him look like a really weird guy. You can make him look like a bad guy. What about when he said, if you want to follow me, you got to hate your father, hate your mother, hate your family. I mean, come on. Put that on a website. Now, in context, what he's saying is, you got to love me more than you love that. And you might have to leave your family to follow me. And they may not understand why you're following me. And they, may not, they might not receive you now. But you've got to love me more. Yeah. But out of context, yeah. So people use the Berean as a, as a group of people that are sitting there with scowls in their face the whole time. Chapter and verse. I'm going to check it out. Oh, yeah. I'm going to nail this guy. Well, he's not reading all the authorized King James Version. Already he's going to hell. Well, I'll, I'll keep listening. Oh, my goodness. Look at him. And they'll come up with all sorts of stuff. I'll tell you what, the Bereans, they were compared to the Jews in Thessalonica. He's comparing them to the people that rejected the word. He's not comparing the people that just swallowed everything they heard. It was the opposite. They rejected everything they heard. So what was great about the Bereans is they received the word with eagerness and they were so excited they went home and checked it out and saw it to be true. As believers, when someone's preaching the word of God, receive it with eagerness. Go home, get your Bibles out and read it for yourself. Let it come alive to you. Read the scriptures that came before the scripture you read in church. Read the scriptures that came after. Read it in its context. See the riches of it. Let it grow inside of you. He's not teaching you to become critics. He's teaching you to become gold miners. And later he says to the Thessalonians in a letter to the, well, Thessalonians he called them. In, in a letter to the Thessalonians, in, in, in fact, we, let's turn there for a minute. Just hold your place in Acts. In 1 Thessalonians I want you to see something that he 
emphasized to them. Later on, this is much later in the story, but in 1 Thessalonians 5, he gives them some final words of encouragement before he ends his letter. And he says in verse 16, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Then he says, don't quench the Spirit. How do I quench the Spirit? Well, he goes on and says, now this isn't entirely the same thought, but they're linked. Don't quench the Spirit. And the next one, he says, don't despise prophetic utterances. Despise. The way we talk about it now, despise means I hate it, I hate it so much. But despise in older English and, and in the scripture here, this word doesn't just mean to hate something. More, more likely, it usually means just to treat it like it doesn't count. Like it's, it's not a big deal. So the Bible says that Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame. It doesn't mean he's on the cross going, I hate shame, I hate shame. No, it means he didn't count the shame as worth anything. He didn't give the shame a second thought. For the joy set before him, which is you, he endured the cross. So there are things you must despise, which means you don't give it any account. Despise the devil. Don't give him a place. Despise his lies. Apostle Paul said that there were things that seemed heavy to everyone else. The, the stuff he was going through, the beatings, the imprisonment. But he says, I consider these light momentary afflictions to not be worthy to be compared with the eternal weight of glory. So you see what he's saying? He goes, that stuff's not even worth me considering. It's not worth me comparing it to what waits for me and what I have in Christ. So I don't spend a lot of time weeping and crying over what's happening on the outside because that's light. This is heavy. You see what he's doing? He's despising that stuff. He's not giving it more weight than it should have. So when it says don't despise prophetic utterances, it doesn't, it's not saying you shouldn't hate prophetic utterances. It means you shouldn't take them lightly or like they don't count. And prophetic utterances is not just when someone stands in front of you and says, thus says the Lord. Prophetic utterances encompass, encompasses a whole lot. It, it's also talking about when someone gets up and preaches the word of God as if it's coming from God himself. Not that that person is in that place to speak for God. and Not that you should accept that person as, as God incarnate by any means. They're human too. And they're just a human vessel. But the Bible says, Peter writes, let the one who speaks, speak as the utterance of God. Later, Paul says to these guys, he says, I thank God consistently that when I came to you, you received what I had to say, not as a word from man, but as it was, really was a word from God. And it is that word which is performing its work in you who believe. So he's saying, I'm thankful that you didn't just say, well, that's his opinion. But when I preached the word of God to you, you received it as the word of God. And because you received it as a word of God, it performs its work in you. Now look at this. He says, don't despise prophetic utterances. But... Why might they despise prophetic utterances? Why do you figure they might do that? I'll tell you why. Because I grew up in church. Can I tell you why? Because if you go to church long enough, we got 10 people that tell you they heard from God. And half of them had a strong feeling, and they thought it was God. 
Half of them haven't learned to discern what's God and what's them. Now, when you take seriously a word from God, you don't just throw that, throw that out there, from God, I heard from God. When you say it, you mean it. Because it should count for something. You know, in the Old Testament, they executed people that said, I heard from God, and here's what God says, and they were wrong. God help us if that was our standard. <laughs> but you see the weight they put on it. Now, thank God Jesus has borne our penalty, but doesn't mean we should take it lightly. So I grew up in the church having a lot of people that say a lot of things to you, and they preface it with, this is what God says. Some of them were right. And you could almost tell instantly that they were right, because not only does your spirit confirm it, it lines up with the Word of God, but you know, somehow God, like your spirit, you, you know, oh man, that's, there's something different to that. And it's not because they're flattering. Most of the time, flattering, you, you kind of go, oh, okay, I get it. You're trying to make me, trying to flatter me so I believe what you say. But it's not flattery, it's not this. But a lot of times when God speaks to you, he uses phrases and words that nobody else knew you used to him. This isn't all the time, but often I've found in the, the, the people that God's used to speak to my life, he uses these little phrases. And these are people that don't know me that well. And they say this, and I go, you couldn't possibly, I don't say this to them, but inwardly I'm saying they couldn't possibly have known. That's exactly the question I asked the Lord. They couldn't possibly have known that's exactly what I said to God. And they worded it right back to me. God used those things to confirm it to me. But we also have the Holy Spirit, which is a spirit of discernment. It, it knows. You have the word of God. If somebody says, I heard from God, it disagrees with this, disregard what they said. But I think what happened to the Thessalonians is they had so many people saying so many things that they just said, forget it. Just forget it. We don't want to believe in it. It's too much trouble. There are whole denominations today that have gotten to that point. Too much trouble. Forget it. <laughs> because we're tired of it. And it's causing trouble. It's causing strife. So forget it. Nobody says you heard from God. God doesn't speak anymore. This is, you know, except through the scripture and that's it. But you see what he says to them. He says, don't quench the spirit. Don't despise or take of no account prophetic utterances. But here's what you do. Because you can't just swallow everything whole, can you? Here's what you do. Examine everything carefully. How does the scripture tell us to examine these things? In 1 Corinthians 2, it says, A spiritual man appraises all things, but is appraised by no one, which means that there is a Holy Spirit inside of you, which is able to confirm some things. And when you spend some time praying about something, you'll know. But also, you run it by the word of God. You search through scriptures. You find out. If it lines up or if it doesn't. But look what it says. Examine everything carefully. Then do what? Hold fast to what's good. Once again, the same folks that I was talking to you about before are the same ones that I use this scripture to say, examine everything. Hold fast. They won't say the whole fast part. They say, those in the scripture say, examine everything carefully. And that's once again is their excuse to just go, I can't wait till he messes up, and I'm going to write it down. I'm going to put it on my blog. I'm going to make a YouTube video on it. No, 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 no. A YouTube series about it. But what does it say? Examine everything good. Hold on tight. Examine everything carefully, sorry. Hold on tight to what is good. See what you're doing? You're digging for gold. You're finding what's from God, and you're holding on to it. The other stuff, throw it away. Eat the meat. Spit out the bones. 
And if somebody over and over again keeps saying stuff to you, it's not from God, just don't listen to them anymore. Just, just say, all right, I'm going to smile and nod at you. But I'm not going to go move to California because you told me to. Nobody here is planning to move to California, are you? <laughs> it warmed up, so that thought went away for a while. A couple of weeks ago, everybody was planning to move to California. Examine everything carefully, hold fast to what is good, but he's not done. Verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. So here's what he's telling you to do. Examine it. Don't take it lightly, but examine it. Find what's good and hold fast and stay away from the evil stuff. Simple, isn't it? So the Bereans were noble. They eagerly received the word of God. You want to be noble in the sight of God? Eagerly receive his word. Take it home, get your Bible out, and chew on it. Meditate on it. Do you know meditate, Eastern religions have stolen that word, but meditate is a godly word. You'll find it in the Old Testament. God says to Joshua, meditate on this word day and night. The Hebrew word that is used for meditate means to mutter to oneself over and over again the word of God. Go home and chew on that word. Pray about it. Read it in the Bible. Let God open your heart because here's the thing. The Jews he was talking about, they knew the scriptures he used. It's not that he preached new scriptures to them. He preached them and then said, here it is manifest. Here it is revealed to you. This is Jesus that we're reading about. So God used what they had already heard, but he opened it up to them. Do you remember when the the strangers, these two disciples of Jesus were walking. They weren't part of the 12, but they were part of the larger group that had followed him. And they're walking to Emmaus and Jesus joins them and he doesn't let himself be recognized yet. And he walks with them for a little bit and he notices that they're very sad. And he says, why are you sad? They said, you've been living under a rock? What, you don't know what happened? And they tell him what happened about Jesus being crucified. They don't know they're talking to Jesus. But they're sad. Now, had they believed what Jesus said, they wouldn't be sad. They'd be expectant because he said, I'm going to rise again. But they didn't believe that. They didn't get it. They didn't really grasp it. So it says that as he walks with them, he begins from way back in the Old Testament up to the present time, he begins to reveal to them the law and the prophets. And he begins to show them in those scriptures where he is in those scriptures. It says as he's walking with them, as he's revealing to this, their eyes are open and they recognize him. So here's the, and, and when they leave, when he leaves, they say to one another, didn't our hearts burn within us when he spoke? You see, Jesus didn't give them new scriptures, but he opened their eyes to those scriptures. Here's the deal. When you walk into a service, or you go at home and you open your Bible and you're reading it, God wants to open your eyes and you'll see things in that word that you never saw before. You'll hear things that challenge your traditional view. Now, not all tradition is bad, but there are things we believe just because that's what everybody said. And when God opens your eyes, you have a choice whether to go up too much and you harden your heart and you get angry, or you soften your heart and you receive it. And you go home and you check it out. And you go home and, and, and with an open heart, with an eager heart, yes. you seek God. Yes. 
You see, if you're going home and checking it out just to prove it wrong, your heart's not open. You've got a hard heart and you can't receive a word. Jesus said when he told the parable of the sower and he told it in a parable and the disciples said, why would you tell it in a parable? He says, well, the scripture tells us that they will hear. They'll hear it with their ears, but they will not really hear it. They'll, see, they'll, they'll, they'll behold it with their eyes, but they won't see. They'll, they'll, they'll be there, but they won't understand it. And he says, in their case, it's fulfilled that they've closed their eyes. They've shut their ears. Their hearing has become dull. And with their hearts, they scarcely understand. And if their eyes were open to the word, if their ears were open, if their hearts were open, he says, they turn. And if they were to turn to me, I would heal them. Do you hear that? See, the problem is that they weren't there to hear the word. The problem is they had shut their eyes. Over time, their hearing had become dull. Their hearts had become hard. And they could hear the word. But you know, the scripture says in, in Hebrews, it says today, it's quoting from the Old Testament, today if you hear his voice, hear my voice, hear his voice. Do not harden your heart. Every time you hear the voice of God, you've got a choice whether to harden your heart or whether to soften your heart. But you cannot stay neutral. So every church service you come to, guys, every time you open the Bible and you sincerely read it, every time you have a significant spiritual conversation with another believer where something that God is trying to say to you is said through them, every time this happens, you've got a choice. You can't walk into church when, there, when there's a service where the word is being preached and the power of the Holy Spirit, you can't walk out of there the same. It's not an option. You either walk out of there changed and transformed in some way, something new implanted in your heart, or you leave harder than you came in. Because the Bible teaches us that when you hear the word of God and you reject it, your heart gets hard. So here's the thing. Let's be less like the Thessalonians which were rejecting the gospel straight out because it, it messed with their tradition. It messed with what they'd already learned. Hey, if you've been going to church as long as I have, you've got some old stuff that just builds up that you just think, and sometimes it's challenged, and that's good. There's some stuff Jesus told his disciples, there's stuff I want to tell you now, but I can't tell you yet. When you receive the Holy Spirit, then, then you'll understand these things. And, and there's more I want to say to you. Hebrews chapter 5, he says, there's deeper things I want to talk about, but you're not ready to hear it because you're immature. So there are things that you couldn't understand when you were a new believer that as you grow, God will teach you new things and they will mess with you. They'll mess with you. Oh, I can't, I'm, I'm talking to you as somebody who preaches. It doesn't mess with anybody more than preachers. Because sometimes you've got to go back and you've got to preach something and realize you've been preaching it wrong for years. Do you know how hard that is? That's not fun. I'd love, I'd love it if God says, oh, you're going to be a pastor? Here's a special USB drive. Plug it in. It's everything you need to know ever. It's all the right doctrine about everything. Everything's right. And I could get up here and I could say, I never say a word wrong. But I found... That as you grow, pastors grow, evangelists grow, prophets grow. We all grow. Everybody grows. And as you grow, sometimes your old beliefs are challenged. And it's tough when you already talk to people about the old things. And now you got to go back and say, I was wrong. 
But I'd rather please God than please people. And I know you would too. Let's be noble. Let's be eager for the word. Let's receive it. Treat it with enough dignity and value that you're willing to go home and check it out again. If you're not going home, I'm just going to say something. It's going to be a bit challenging. But if, if you hear a message on Sunday or Wednesday night and you don't think about it throughout the week, you never go back to that verse throughout the week, you're not getting a lot out of it. Can I just challenge you? Write down the verses you're reading. Go back and listen to the message so that you can go and get your Bible out and reread it and recheck it out. Because otherwise, we're just hearing a nice message. The Word's supposed to change us, supposed to grow in us. I've said this probably a dozen times in your presence. But if the Word is a seed, the seeds only get bigger. So no matter how charismatic the, the preacher is, how well he speaks or she speaks or how interesting they are, it's supposed to get bigger than it was the first time you heard it. The only way for it to get bigger is for it to be watered, nurtured, treated like it's valuable. So go home and examine it. Go home and read this again. Read these verses again. Pray about it. Say, God, if I missed something the first time, show me the second time. Show me the third time. That's what God's looking for. You know why? Because it shows that you value His voice. In a world where it's so easy to get teaching, it's so easy to buy a Bible. You know, I think about these Christians and been persecuted in places like China at different periods of time. China goes back and forth. Sometimes they're a little bit easier on Christians. Sometimes they're a little bit harder. But there have been times where there have been believers who were thrown in prison, thrown in prison and everything was taken away from them, including their Bible. And there were those that memorized as much scripture as they could, wrote it, in the, wrote it in the dirt in their cells so that they wouldn't forget. There were those, there was, I remember there was a story of a little girl who was told to spit on her Bible. And if she didn't, her family would be shot in front of her. She grabs her Bible and she kisses it and refuses to spit on it. You say, it's just a book. We get it, we got it on our iPhones. We got it in a million different, we can get it paperback, we can get it bonded leather, we can get it calf skin, we can get it goat skin. But you know what that little girl understood? You know what some of those believers understood where it was scarce? It's valuable. It's worth something. I'm glad that the Bible is on the iPad. I'm glad it's on your phone, but don't treat it like it's another thing on your phone. Don't treat it like it's another book on your shelf. The Word of God is meant to be treated as gold. Receive it with eagerness. Examine it. Hold fast to what's good. Amen? God bless you. Stand up with me.